Well, good morning. It's good to see you guys. My name is Tim. I'm the pastor here. And if you're new, I just want to welcome you. I'll, I'll be in the back after the service. Would love to meet you if I haven't done so already. If you're not new, I want to welcome you back. We're in week five of this series called Living Hope. Just going verse by verse in the book of First Peter, talking about hope through suffering and what all that means and who we are in Christ and how we live out of that. And so if you've missed any of that, it's a rich, rich book. There's so much in there. And so if you've missed any of that, you can go on iTunes, search Phoenix Bible Church. You can go on our website, phoenixbiblechurch.com, and get caught up. I think it will be helpful for you. Happy Super Bowl Sunday. Yeah? I see a couple jerseys. A couple? Maybe? You guys embarrassed to show your face? There's one. There you go, Jason. Uh, Arizona's out. I'm so sorry for you guys. Uh, Dallas is also out, but that's the way it is every year. And so I kind of check out about this time and start looking towards the draft and next year. And I'm an optimistic Cowboys fan, and so you can pray for me. But uh, I hope you guys enjoy the Super Bowl. It's going to be a fun time. Invite friends, invite neighbors. Use it as an opportunity to be hospitable, to be missional, to reach out to people who may not know Jesus. It's a great time. Everybody watches the Super Bowl. It doesn't matter if you like football or not. And so enjoy that later today. Uh, As the Super Bowl is upon us, there's lots of shows on TV about the Super Bowl. And so there was one the other night that I watched on the 85 Chicago Bears and their Super Bowl run. And I didn't intend to watch the whole thing. I was flipping through channels, and it was on ESPN, and it was so compelling that I ended up watching the whole thing. And if you didn't see it, or if you don't know what I'm talking about, it's these guys who played in that season, who went to the championship, won the whole thing, and they're interviewing the key players on the team. And all of them are talking about these big football players who who played long ago. They're all talking about this team. And how they fought for one another like a brother. And for the the guy next to them in the locker room. The guy sitting across from them in the locker room. And how they gave it their all for these men. And these guys are talking about how special that was. And at the end of it, they asked them, they asked each one of them, like, do you have any regrets? Is there anything you would change? And to a man, every one of them said, no. I, I wouldn't change anything. I would go back and relive every moment for these men. They had one of the coaches, Buddy Ryan, who was the defensive coordinator. And he's in the latter stages of his life, not doing very well. And they, they would go on site to his house and they would show him. And, and he, at the very, very end of the show, was communicating to his assistant as she typed out this letter because he could no longer use his fingers. And she's typing out this letter and they start to play some music to set the ambiance, and then they begin to give this finished letter to the players, and they slide it across to each player, and they start reading it out loud, and it's all about how this coach who brought this team to the Super Bowl, all about how he loved them, they're his heroes, how he would do anything for them, and these big, tough football players are getting emotional. I mean, they're starting to cry. In fact, one of the players just, just pushed it back across the table and said, he, I can't read that. I, I can't read it. I get too emotional. And, and these big, tough football players are getting emotional, and I'm watching it, and this salty residue begins to well up in my eyes. And I'm thinking, what's, what's happening right now? But you saw this special moment where these guys realized they were a part of a team. You saw a community develop around a cause. 
You saw a people come together over a purpose. You saw a family that was built. A family that was so strong, they said, even though I have these physical pains from playing such a violent game, even though I have emotional struggles, and some of them did, they said, I would go back and I would do it all again. Because it was that important, it was that special. Listen, if you know Jesus Christ, you are part of a family that's way bigger than that. That's way bigger than the Super Bowl, way bigger than a sport, way bigger than a team. You're part of a family that's built on Jesus. And that's what we're going to dive into today is how special that is, what its purposes are, how you can participate in that, how some of you need to step out in participating in that. And so we're going to dive in that today. So if you take notes, here's our big idea. It's that we are a family built on Jesus to declare and demonstrate his blessings. We are a family built on Jesus to declare and demonstrate his blessings. And so we're just going to walk right through that the rest of our time together. So if you have a Bible, take a look at it with me. You can also look on the screen. Verse 4, it says, As you come to him, that him is Jesus. And then Peter begins to tell us just briefly what Jesus is like, that he's a, a living stone. So Peter's saying he's alive. And he's not just alive, but he's a chosen stone. He's precious. He's the most precious stone. Jesus is alive, and he's precious in the sight of God. But he also says he's rejected. If you read the Gospels, you know a lot of people love Jesus, follow Jesus, but a lot of people rejected Jesus. It's the same way today. He's chosen, precious, alive, but he's also rejected. In verse 5, if you look at that verse, he says we're similar to Jesus as believers in him and that we're living stones. So does we become more like Jesus as you grow to follow Jesus? You become more alive. You become more like Jesus. You become precious to God. We're going to read later on in this passage that you're a people for God's own possession. That God talks about you when you're in Christ as God's treasured possession. And so we become more like Jesus as we follow him. And he says we're being built up into a spiritual house that believers are like a collective temple. In the Old Testament, if you're familiar with it, it, it talks about the temple as a holy place. But what happens after Jesus comes, he lives, he dies, he resurrects, he gives us his Holy Spirit, and no longer is the holy place a place. It's a person, it's a people. So that you are a holy people, and you're being built up like a spiritual house. He's describing a family that's being built up. And maybe some of you look around, and if you're honest, it doesn't feel like that. It doesn't feel like a family. Maybe you came today and you're new and you're not really sure who anybody is around you. Maybe you've been coming for a while and maybe you're somewhat connected. You know people's names. You kind of know some stuff that's going on in people's lives. But if you're honest, most of the time because of jobs, hobbies, family, sickness, and all those things, it doesn't feel like a family. It feels like everybody's doing their own thing. But notice how Peter states this. He says you're being built up in verse 5. That it's a work in progress. That it's happening. That you're being built up. That they were being built up as believers in Christ. That you are being built up. It doesn't happen day one. And some of you, this gets frustrating. 
it gets frustrating because you try to enter into this family of God. You, you attend church. Maybe you meet somebody at church. Maybe you sign up for an event or maybe you join a Bible study or a community group. And maybe some of you have done that and, and you're expecting, okay, I'm going to enter into this family. It's going to be so great. People are going to come alongside me. I'm going to lock arms with fellow believers. And maybe it doesn't happen right away. Have you had that experience? Maybe you walk into a community group and you're brand new. It's your first time, but people kind of act like you've been there forever. <laughs> they don't ask you your name. They don't ask you your story. And you think, why did I do that? That was so awkward. Like nobody even asked me any questions. Maybe you, you come to church and you sit here and you get here early and you got your notes out and your Bible ready, but nobody comes to talk to you. Have you ever had that experience? Hopefully you didn't have that experience today at Phoenix Bible Church. But sometimes we have those experiences and we don't experience this family, this, this spiritual house that Peter is describing, and we don't experience it right away. And many of us get frustrated. You need to notice that he's saying this is a process, that we're being built up. This is a, a formation that happens over time. And this is something true in all of life, that most things that matter are hard and slow. Right? Just read the Bible. If you're new to church or new to Christianity, just let me tell you something about the Bible, is that most things that happen in the Bible are long, they're hard, they're slow. And God uses those things to do amazing works that glorify him, that bring people joy. But oftentimes they're, they're long, they're hard, and they're slow. You don't see many people winning the lottery over and over. Like you don't see many people just experiencing this Powerball rush, the success over and over and over in Scripture. You see a lot of difficulty, but you see God shine through that difficulty. And that's really true about all of life, that anything that actually matters is a process, right? I'm reading a book right now. It talks about how we all want large, fast, and famous. We all want large, fast, and famous. We want that in the church we want that in our personal lives. We want that in our career. We want large, fast, and famous. But what he talks about is most of what matters in life is small at first, that it's long, and that it's mundane. That you think about what it takes to learn the piano. We have some amazing musicians up here. One of them teaches my daughter how to play the piano. And listen, it takes a long time. She can testify to that. Right, she's, my, my daughter's six years old. It takes a long time to, to learn how to play the piano. Right, she can't get up here and lead worship yet. One day, we're praying for that. But right now, she's not there. It's a long process. You think about parenting. Some of you are parents in here, and you know that at three months old, you're not an expert. Right, some, sometimes we joke about that, like, oh, you're the expert now. And it's a joke because you're not the expert yet. Like sometimes you get it figured out about year 18, and then they move out of the house, right? That anything that's worthwhile, that marriage, that parenting, that honing your craft, that anything that matters can be long, can be slow, can be small at first, can feel a little bit mundane. And it's the same way with the family of God. 
that through all of these little things over and over, God brings them to fruition and to this beautiful thing that oftentimes we don't realize until we take a step back. So my family and I lived in Portland, and we would go to Seattle all the time, and it's about a three-hour drive, if you've ever done that drive, Portland to Seattle. And one day, we got caught in a snowstorm. And instead of three hours, it was nine hours. And it was awful. Uh, we had our kids in the back. It was, it was really not a good plan. And so we're going to Seattle, bumper to bumper traffic the whole way, and it's a snowstorm, so we stop over at a rest stop and just let the kids play in the snow. But honestly, that didn't redeem it for me. I was still pretty frustrated because of this nine-hour trip that should only take three. And the other day, my wife's thumbing through some pictures, and she sees this picture of our daughter playing in the snow. And our son's there too, and they look so happy. And we looked at that picture, and do you know what we did when we saw that picture? Do you think we sat there and looked at the picture and said, ah, I hated that trip. It was so frustrating. No, we saw our kids playing in the snow, and we said, aw, that was so sweet. Remember we stopped at that rest stop, and they were playing in the snow, and they don't get to see snow much because we're from Texas? And we, we looked at that picture, and we said, oh, that was so great. You see, that always happens when we step back and we look at pictures. Maybe you've, if you're a, a woman in here, if you've done scrapbooking, maybe for those of you now, uh, today, that's Facebook memories, since we don't actually have the real scrapbook anymore. But as you see those things, as Facebook so kindly reminds you of your memories in life, and you see those memories, and you step back in hindsight, and you think, wow, that was so special. Oh, wow, I didn't realize that person was here. I didn't realize that we got to do that. It was so beautiful. But oftentimes in the moment, we can't see that. You know what we don't do that with, that awe moment, that beautiful moment as we look at these photographs? We never do that with selfies. If you do, we might need to talk about some other things. But we never look at a selfie and think, aw, that was so cute. That was so beautiful. Again, we might need to talk about some things if that's you. We never do that with a selfie. We never step back and think that was so special. Listen, as we, as we talk about what it means to follow Christ, especially in the midst of suffering, you can't do it alone, that it takes time to build that up, that you're being built up as a spiritual house, as a family, and sometimes it may be hit or miss. Sometimes it may feel mundane and insignificant and slow, but what Peter is painting a picture of so that you would step back and see and see that it's beautiful and see that it's worth it is this body coming together, not individuals, but this family, you see it over and over in Scripture, the body of Christ, the family of God. It's throughout Scripture. You never see an individualistic faith. I remember when I was younger, I would go to camps and just different church worship services, and the worship leader would talk about, like, it's just you and God. Like, it's just you and God. I mean, just sing to him. I mean, remove everybody else in this room. It's just you and God. And I know what they were trying to say. They were trying to say, like, remove distractions, like, just focus on God. 
but sometimes it perpetuates this individualistic mindset in Christianity. Maybe you've experienced that before, where you come to church and you get what you need, and somebody else comes to church and they get what they need, and you really like the worship, and you got some really good points to take away for your life, and then you go over to your little private corner, and you see how that can work itself out. Listen, you need to know that's, that's foreign to Scripture, that it's always a community around a cause, a people being formed around a purpose, a family of God. And that's the picture that Peter wants you to see. And it's a beautiful picture when we step back and look, of it, look at it, and it's worth our time. It's worth that process that, that is hit and miss at the beginning. It's worth it to keep going back and making that effort to experience this spiritual house that's being built up over time. Peter paints that picture for us. I hope you see that. I hope you see that we're living stones. He uses that imagery that we're, we're stones like built in a wall, like in a house, so that if you're not there, there's gaps in the house. Do you see that? That if you're part of this family and if you're not participating in it, that there's cracks that develop in that house. There's, there's gaps that there should be a stone next to you, a stone across from you. And if there's not, there's, there's gaps. That we're a family built on Jesus. That's the next thing we're going to see in verse 6, that we're a family built on Jesus. It says this in verse 6. Look at the verse. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. There's a ton in this passage. We're not gonna get to it all, but we're gonna try to do our best. Peter is referencing three Old Testament passages when he talks about the, the cornerstone and these stones. Isaiah 28, you can write these down, read them later. Psalm 118 and Isaiah 8. It's this imagery of a builder that's going through stones and trying to find the best one to use as the foundation. And I'm not construction savvy. I'll just get that out of the way on the front end. Uh, I've never built a house, but I do take my kids to Home Depot. And on Saturdays, maybe if you're a parent, you've, you've done this, uh, there's, a, there's this workspace for kids, and you get to go in there and build a little project with your kids. And so we did this yesterday, and it was a Valentine's Day mailbox. And the same thing with every pot project. This one was no different. There's always this one piece that you start with because it's pretty crazy. I mean, they give, like, three-year-olds a hammer and nails, and you're in kind of tight quarters, like, and they're just banging away on these projects. And I don't think we signed a waiver. I, don't, I tried to ask Jaya last night, my wife, I was like, did we sign a waiver? Like, that's crazy that they let us do that. But we're doing that, but they, they give this foundational piece that makes it easy for the kids to learn how to put this thing together. It always starts with this one piece, and then everything fits around that, and they can fi figure it out. And it's the same way in life. We all have this foundational piece that we build our lives around. Maybe for some of you, at one point in your life, that was your career. And you thought, I'm going to put everything in order around this. Maybe at some point, maybe now, it's your family. If you're honest, like your day-to-day, your week-to-week, that everything falls into place 
situates around your family, your schedule, the kids' school. Not that those things are bad, but if you're honest, everything falls around that. Maybe it's everything falling around money and everything being put into place around money. we got to save this much, buy these things, shop at this store, have these items, achieve these goals. And all you talk about, all you think about, and all your affections line up around that. You see, all of us will build our lives on something. Peter is saying to build your life on the cornerstone, the only one that is precious and chosen, to put that as the foundation. And as you do that, that everything else falls into place around that. Do you see it? You see that imagery? That a cornerstone would have angles to it. That it would have angles and that every other stone would have to fit around that one. Not the other way around. That every other stone in our lives fits around that one. And so that career that's really important and you need to provide, that family that's a blessing, that money that you need to steward well, that all of that fits around these angles and these ridges of Jesus, the chief cornerstone. That it all starts with him. And that's the only way it works. And if you don't start with that, just like if my kids started with something else instead of that foundational piece, it would go very bad. If you don't start with Jesus as the, the precious cornerstone of your life and build everything around him, it will go bad. And that's what this text teaches us, that there's two options with Jesus. Maybe you're new to Christianity, new to church. Maybe this is your first time trying this out. We're really glad that you're here. But you need to know that ultimately Christianity is all about Jesus. That the Bible is all about Jesus. That church, you see where this is going? Is all about Jesus. That he's the cornerstone on which all this is built. If we don't get that right, then nothing else matters. And what this text teaches us is that either you build your life on him or you stumble over him. Verse 8. Look at verse 8 again with me. It says, a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. Maybe that's confusing for you, but you have to remember this imagery that Peter is laying out for us, this picture that he's painting, that either you build your life on this stone or you trip over it. And how many times do you see that in life? How many friends of yours, acquaintances of yours, family members of yours, you talk to them about Jesus and they shut down? Maybe you bring up your faith and they immediately just walk away. Maybe you talk about how your faith sustained you during a difficult time, and your friend or your family member or your coworker just, that's a crutch. I mean, good for you that you need that. They stumble, right? That you either love Jesus and worship Jesus, or you turn away from him. That there's no in between, which means these terms of nominal Christianity, casual Christians, it doesn't even make sense, right? And listen, in a place like Phoenix, where people are familiar with church, they're familiar with Jesus, sometimes we can tend to think, well, everybody's a Christian, right? Everybody knows Jesus. I mean, they got the t-shirt, they got the bumper sticker, 
I mean, everybody knows what we're talking about. Everybody's probably living this out and putting their whole life and building their whole life around Jesus. And you need to know that while it may look different in different cultures, and it does in ours, that people are still stumbling over Jesus. And you know how you can tell? When you ask people how they spend their time, their talent, and their treasure. When you just ask them, how do they do that? When you look at your own life, how do I do that? How do I navigate all these things? And then you can really tell, are we building our lives around Jesus or something else? And when you ask somebody, like, hey, move this around, quit this job, take this other job, navigate differently with your family, get a different schedule, and they're like, well, no. And you're like, but man, if you did that, don't you see you're going down this wrong path? If you did that, it would clean up some things in your life, and you'd be able to follow Jesus and worship him and treasure him more. And you see people hear all that, and they say, yeah, I'll pray about it, which means they're not going to do it. And they're just trying to be nice, right? That we know that what the stone is that we build our life around when we look at our time and our talent and our treasure. And it's confusing in Phoenix because we have this nominal Christianity, this casual Christianity where people know the language and wear the shirt, but they're not living life built around Jesus as him as their foundation. And so we need to look at our lives first and ask, like, what are we building our lives on? And then our coworkers, our neighbors, our family members, as we seek to minister to them, and we need to proclaim to them the beauty of this picture of this family built on Christ that everything else lines up around, and we need to call them to that bigger picture so that they can see it, so they won't stumble over it, but instead they'll begin to build their lives on it. That's what Peter is calling us to. The last part of verse 8, I told you guys there's a lot in here, and so we're just going to take a second to look at this last part. It says they stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. That word destined may stand out to you, uh, it's not Peter's main point, and so we're not going to make it ours, but I don't want to bypass it. I do want to hit on it for a second. You need to know that this phrase in Scripture, this concept in Scripture, has been debated by scholars and theologians and churches and religions throughout history. And so we're not going to nail that down in 30 minutes, <laughs> but we're going to give it a shot and let you guys know what some of the primary views are. Here's three views primarily that you see throughout church history that people have, and then I'd love to talk with you about this after the service. The first view is that, just quite simply, maybe as you read it, that God destines some to disobedience. If you just read that verse, that's some, something that people take away. Well, it looks like God destines some people to obedience. It doesn't say God. Notice that in the passage. It doesn't say God destined. It says they were destined, but some people take that to mean that God is the one who destines, he destines everything, he's sovereign, and he actually destines some to disobedience. The second view primarily is that it's referring to our sin nature. That we're all born with a sin nature, that we all go the wrong way, that even as babies, the first word you learn is no, right? And so that we're destined to disobey. Unless we believe in Jesus, we're destined to disobey him. We're destined to go in our own way and stumble over him. The third view is that God appoints those who stumble 
to stumble because they do not believe. That their disobedience is not what God had ordained, but the penalty of that disobedience is. So that the blame is ultimately on the person, not God, that God didn't organize this, but that they begin to disobey, and the result of that, the, the destruction in that, is their destiny because that's what they chose. So listen, I'm tired just reading that. There's a lot there, right? As I studied that this week, I just wrestled with over and over, like, I mean, do we do the whole sermon on this? Because we could. Um, you know, do we just bypass it and hit the main points? Because it doesn't seem like this is Peter's main point. I thought about just taking a vote and seeing which side of the room wanted to hash this out. Uh, but none of those are good options. Listen, the, the reason why we go through Scripture, maybe you're new with us, we love to go through books of the Bible. And so we're going through the book of 1 Peter verse by verse because we believe God's word is alive and it's active in our lives. It's powerful that every verse, like even the ones in Obadiah, that they're all active, they're all powerful, they're all abiding in our lives. And so we want to look at it. And so I believe this phrase has a message for us, a meaning for us in our lives. But I want you to see that as we look at Scripture and we do that, and we were going to keep doing that, that sometimes there are passages because God, an infinite God, wrote this for finite men, that sometimes there are passages that we don't fully comprehend, and this is one of those. And so I'm going to let you wrestle with this, and maybe some of you are like, really? He's going to stop like that? He's going to move on? I am, and I'm going to tell you this. 1 Peter 2.12 we're going to hit that in a second. It says to conduct yourselves in such a way that the Gentiles, those who don't believe God, would one day glorify God because of your deeds. That on the day of visitation, the day Christ returns, this is 2.12, just a few verses away, that we're going to talk about in a second how we're to proclaim the excellencies of God so that others around us might know the mercy we've received in God. That later on, 2 Peter, the same guy who writes this, writes that God doesn't wish anyone to perish but all to be saved, that he's patient. You see all across Scripture that God desires humanity to be brought back into a relationship with him. You see the Father send his own son, Jesus, to show how much you mean to him, to show how much his glory, your joy, and a relationship and communion with the Father means to him. And so what I would say to you is Scripture always interprets Scripture. That we don't read one verse and just that be our life verse and we never look at anything else, right? We look at all of it. And so what I can tell you about God, about his character, is that God's sovereign. That he knows everything. That he's all-powerful. And that God's loving. And that he wants you to be in relationship with him. And that even in the midst of your disobedience, that he's pursuing you. And it's not based on you. And it's not based on what you've done. And it's not based on your class or your finances. It's based entirely upon him. And listen, that should bring encouragement to you, even when you read a verse like this. Because we start to think as we go down this rabbit trail of this one specific phrase that's not the main point, we start to think, well, am I destined to disobey? I mean, what if I can't do anything about it? I mean, maybe that's my problem. 
actually, that sounds like a great excuse. I'm going to tell my parents. I was just destined to disobey. You don't understand. That's why I gave you such a hard time. Because as we start to get wrapped up into that thinking, we lose sight of God, that he's pursuing you, that he's empowering you, that he wishes for you to be saved and brought into his family. And as we're going to read in a second, that he wants you to proclaim, to practice his blessings in your life. And so listen, here's what I'm going to do. Um, This could be like a whole lecture on how God ordains things in life and how that shapes out. And maybe sometime we'll do a PBU for that, Phoenix Bible University. But after the service, if you have a question about this, I would love to dialogue these views with you. I'd love to answer any question that you may have. And so we're going to hit pause on that. Some of you are going to figure this out before we leave. But the rest of you hit pause. And let's move on to verse 9. So continuing with our big idea that we're a family built on Jesus to declare and demonstrate his blessings. This is the third part of that, that we're to declare and demonstrate his blessings. Look at verse 9. It says, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Mercy, beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Verse 9, again, brings up another lofty subject that we don't have time to fully examine today, but he talks about a holy priesthood. That in the Old Testament, you had a temple, this holy place. But you also had a holy person, the high priest. And in this temple, you had this place called the Holy of Holies. It was where you would meet and encounter God directly. And that that high priest was the only one allowed in the Holy of Holies. That a normal man, a normal woman couldn't go into that space, but only that specific person And he had to do all these things, if you've read the Old Testament, he had to do all these things to to get clean and all these rituals to go in there and meet with God. And even he could only do that once a year. And so that's the imagery that Peter is referring to. That's the account in the Old Testament that Peter is referring to. And what he's saying is that you are now that. Do you see that? That you are now a royal, royal priesthood. You are now a holy nation, a people for his own possession. That all the functions of a priest, a mediator between you and God, a teacher, a minister, that all of those functions, that all of our access, that you now have it directly if you have placed your faith in Jesus. That Jesus came, scripture says that he tore the veil so the veil in the Old, Old Testament in the temple that prevented you from entering into that place, that that veil has been torn. It's been removed, other verses say. That if you believed in Jesus, he is now your mediator. And that you don't need a holy place, that you don't need a holy person, that you have Jesus Christ. And you can go directly to the Father. Again, there's lots of implications with that. I want to just focus on two. Again, you should write these down. It's a big concept in our Bible. But two implications of this is, the first one is that you are the church. So the church is no longer a place you go, a building that you attend, 
a service that you worship in, you are the church. So as we talk about this spiritual house, this family, that's you. And that's you on Sunday, and it's you on Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, and Saturday. That you are the church, that you are this holy priesthood, that you don't need a mediator anymore to access God, that you can provide and function in all of these roles that a priest would have because of Jesus. Does that make sense? Listen, that should be encouraging to you. That should be challenging to you as you think about that you are the church. I know for some of you, I talk about we are going to do this. Like we are going to put on this event. We are going to plan for this this year as a church. And some of you, I can tell, you think like there's a we behind the curtain. There's a we like some special like mercenaries that I have in secret that are going to take care of this. And listen, you need to know that that we is, is we. <laughs> that we is you. That when I say we're, we are planning this sermon series, we're going to do this event, we're going to serve at this thing, I'm inviting you to do that with me. That it's not about a person, it's not about a place, it's about the people of God because of what Jesus has done. That we're a family, that we're built on Jesus, and that we begin to function as the church. That you don't have to come and do that on a Sunday. You can do that throughout the week. The second implication of this, that we're priests, is that we have full access to God. 1 Timothy 2.5, you can look it up later, but it says there's no mediator necessary. Hebrews 4.16 says we can approach God with confidence. We can confess sins and move on. 1 John 1.9, that he'll forgive us. We have full access to God. This breaks down all pretense. This frees us up to talk to God in our car, to pray to God during the week. This is why we have community groups as a church, Bible studies that meet in homes, is because we believe you are our priests. That when you gather around Scripture, that you have immediate and direct access to God. You don't have to come and talk to me to make it count. You don't have to do it on a Sunday so that it actually matters. You have access to God. You can approach him with confidence because of the blood of Christ shed for you. We have full access to God, that you are the church. It's an incredible privilege to be associated with God's family. And Peter's painting that picture, that it's a special thing to be a part of. But there's also a weighty purpose that comes with that. The second part of verse 9 it says that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Verse 10, that he made us a people, gave us mercy, and we proclaim all of this. We proclaim all of these excellencies. We proclaim all of these blessings that our purpose is to proclaim. And that seems daunting for most of us. I'm sure it seems daunting for you. I wrote a post in our Facebook group over the weekend, and you can go look at that if you're in that. If you're not, ask me about it. We can get you connected with it. But just of all the ways we can participate in proclaiming Jesus that are just simple ways that oftentimes we bypass. I just wrote a few down for you this morning, but one simple way that you can proclaim the excellencies of him is just to mention that you go to church. Just to talk about that you go to church, that that's what you did over the weekend. You just went to church. The next level from that is to say, hopefully, it was a positive experience, right? Like if you say, I went to church and I hated it, not the best evangelism tool, right? 
But if you say, I went to church and I got this out of it, or this happened at church, that you can do that, you can proclaim the excellencies of God just in those simple ways. If you invite someone to church, if they actually come with you, you can ask them just simply, what did you think? If you're new today and I meet you in the back, I'm going to ask you, what do you think? Just pulling back the curtain, right? Because I want to know, what did you think? Did you grow up going to church? Is this positive or negative for you? And you can just talk about church and what did they think about it? Did they understand everything clearly? You can ask someone as they tell their story what role God or church has played in their life. You can share your faith, your story about how Jesus sustained you during a difficult time in your life. You can ask somebody to go through scripture. I know that sounds crazy and I thought it was crazy too. My wife and I... uh, Several years ago, started investing into some people that, where we lived in our apartment complex. We started holding events, engaging them, and living life with them. And we thought, let's go through a book of the Bible with them. And we asked like 10 people, and they all said no. And we were very discouraged by that, but we kept hanging out with these people. And a year later, we asked them again, just because we're gluttons for punishment. And they all said yes. And they all came because they knew us by that point. They knew we weren't weird. And they knew we just actually wanted to read the Bible with them. And they came. And it was the one, of most, one of the most amazing experiences of my life. I've never experienced something quite like that. Where I was sitting around 10 people. Some of them knew Jesus. Some of them didn't. And we went through the book of Luke together. And some of you think, well, that's because you're a pastor. No, it's not. They said no to me. I kept asking I kept spending time with them. I kept proclaiming God to them and talking about it with them. And eventually, I got to proclaim it directly from Scripture. And they got to learn about Jesus directly from Scripture. That God's word is living, it's abiding. That we need to point people to it. We need to proclaim his excellencies. Verse 11 through 12 tells us we also need to demonstrate. As we declare, we also need to demonstrate. So we abstain from the passions of the flesh. He says to keep our conduct honorable. Why do we do that? Just for the sake of morality? No. So that others may see our good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. That's the day when Christ returns. That we want to live in such a way where people ask why. That we want to proclaim, declare, demonstrate where people ask why. That your coworker who doesn't know Jesus, your neighbor, your family member, they ask why. Why do you structure your life around this Jesus? Why don't you just do whatever you want to do? Why do you love your spouse like that? Why do you raise your kids like that? Why do you spend your money like that? Why? That we live such good lives around those who don't know Jesus that at one point they begin to glorify God because they see that and it's so attractive that they want it in their own life. And listen, there is a need right here in Phoenix There's darkness that people need to be rescued out of and be brought into the marvelous light of God right here in Phoenix. There's new research that I just read about uh, from a company called the Barna Group. They do research on churches and spiritual things all the time. And this new research uh, for Phoenix specifically, we were in the top 10 of the least church cities. The top 10 of the least church cities in the country. And, And for some of us, and even when I read that, I was like, really? Like, I need to check those facts, right? Because there's a lot of churches. But do you realize how many people live in Phoenix? There's 4.3 million people that live in greater Phoenix. So that per capita, there's not enough churches. That just downtown, 
I read an article the other day that there's 200,000 bedrooms being added just to downtown in the next two years through condos, townhomes, and all those things. And that's just downtown. You think about the suburbs. It's going way more rapidly than that. There's not enough churches, definitely not enough Jesus-centered, Bible-preaching churches to reach everybody in Phoenix, that there's a need right here in Phoenix. We were in the bottom ten in the most Bible-minded cities in the country. Phoenix was in the bottom ten out of 100 cities, meaning they poll all these people of, like, how does the Bible uh, train the way you think and affect the way you live? And in that survey, Phoenix was in the bottom ten. That shows that people don't value this, that they're not living out of this, that we come to church and we don't bring this, that we go home and we don't take it out and dust it off and read this. And even if we do, it doesn't affect how we live. Listen, there's a big need. That's why we planted a church, if you don't know. There's a big need in Phoenix right here where many are outside of God's family, where people build their lives on things that will fade instead of Jesus, where people are so used to darkness that they don't even know they need a light. And listen, I think as we see that, sometimes what we do subconsciously is we end up protecting instead of proclaiming. That Peter is calling us to proclaim, to practice, to declare, to demonstrate. And sometimes instead of doing that, as we see this darkness around us, we end up protecting instead of proclaiming. And I think a great example of that was in the last couple weeks, maybe if you've seen it on the news, was the city council. So our city council has an invocation, an opening prayer at the beginning of every city council meeting. And maybe you've seen this in the news that a group of Satanists said, hey, it's about freedom of religion, if it really is, that we should be allowed to pray the invocation, the opening prayer. We should be able to invoke assistance on the city. And so that's been all over the news, and it's been going back and forth, back and forth. Like, should you allow these Satanists to pray to open up the city council meeting? And no other city in the country has that ever happened. Phoenix, setting the pace, right? In all the wrong ways. And I remember I followed this, and partly I followed it because two weeks ago I got to do the invocation at the city council meeting. And I got to talk about Jesus in front of our city. And I got to pray over our city. And I began to wrestle with this, like, yeah, what do we do with that? What do I do with that? And I began to get frustrated. I began to get frustrated with our city. Like, do they even know what invoke means? That we would allow Satanists to invoke Satan and his help over our city. Like, do they even know what the word means, people? And I began to get frustrated with that. And then I began to get frustrated because they, now they're replacing the prayer with a moment of silence. So nobody wins, right? Nobody can pray at the city council meeting. And I began to get frustrated about that. Like, maybe we should have let them pray. At least then we could pray. And, and I got to pray, and it was an amazing thing. And maybe now it's one of the last prayers. And I began to get frustrated by this, maybe some of you can relate. And then I began to study this passage, and I began to look at what Peter is calling us to, to proclaim the excellencies of God, to live such good lives among those who don't believe that one day they end up glorifying God when he returns. And I began to get convicted. And I felt like God was saying, just honestly in the last couple of days, like, Tim, you get so fired up about protecting this government venue, yet you do not proclaim me to your neighbor that you walk by every day. 
we get so fired up about protecting these things off in our city, in our government, in politics, and we don't proclaim Jesus to our neighbor that we walk by every day. And how many times do we move towards protection instead of proclamation? That we go on rants on Facebook about what's going on in our country, and there's a guy next to us who doesn't believe in Jesus. And last I checked, listen, last I checked, no one's preventing you from talking to that guy. No one's preventing you from proclaiming the excellencies of God to that guy. No one's preventing you from proclaiming the excellencies of God. His mercy that brought you mercy when you didn't deserve it. No one's preventing you from proclaiming that to your spouse when you go to bed at night. No one's preventing us from proclaiming that. And yet we get so fired up about protecting, don't we? I'm confessing to you. I do. We get so fired up about protecting and we lose sight of proclaiming. And what Peter is saying is that we have a message to proclaim. That instead of closing off the doors, instead of working so hard to protect, that we need to unleash the doors of the church and we need to proclaim the gospel message that we have been given in Christ. That instead of trying so hard to protect our church, our kids, our lives, we need to unleash all of those people to live godly lives in the midst of a, a dark culture, to be a light in the darkness, to be salt and light, and to proclaim that we proclaim the God who made us family when we were orphans. We proclaim the God who showed us mercy when we didn't deserve it. We proclaim the God who rescued us out of darkness into marvelous light. That we should start there. Now, when you've started there, when you've proclaimed Jesus to every person you know and every place possible, then we can talk about busting down the city council chamber, chamber doors. Then we can talk about that, and then we can go on rants about that, and then we can petition that. If that's the one place left, if we proclaim Jesus to everyone else in every other place possible, then let's go bust down the doors. And listen, I'll be there right with you. But until then, let's proclaim the excellencies of God right where we are to our spouse, to our kids, to our coworkers, to our neighbors. Maybe some of you walked through this with me and you were frustrated and you, how do we do this? What do we respond? This is how you respond. You proclaim Jesus Christ right where you are. And you pray for our city. And you love people well. And you live such good lives that eventually other people, other crowds of people, other religions, even Satanists, begin to look at you and say, Why? Why? Why do they love people like that? Why do they give like that? Why do they serve like that? Why do they proclaim like that? That we are to be lights in the darkness. That our first priority isn't to protect, but it's to proclaim. And that's just one example. But all of the examples that you see in our culture, you wonder, how do we, how do, we do this? You proclaim. You practice. You declare. You demonstrate who Jesus is to a dying world that desperately needs Jesus. It shouldn't surprise us. As much as it does, it shouldn't, really. It should motivate us to proclaim Jesus. Listen, I don't know where you are this morning. I don't know how you came in here, but I want you to just look right at me just for a second. 
You are the church. You are this family that Peter is talking about. If you've placed your faith in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, you are the church. You have full access to God. You have a privileged status, but you also have a pivotal purpose, and it's to proclaim that he has wired you, he has called you, he has placed you here amongst these people in this season to proclaim him. He's sending you for that purpose. He's building you on Jesus for that purpose. It's an amazing thing we get to be a part of. We get to see hearts and lives change for eternity as we live this out. I want us to do that. I want us to actually live this, not just talk about it. So three questions just to leave you with. The first one is, what rock are you building your life on? That we all build on something, comfort, idols, success, that we all build our lives on a cornerstone. What is that for you? Is it Jesus? If it's anything else but Jesus, good or bad, we need to rearrange some stones. What are those stones in your life? They need to be rearranged. How are you not having Jesus as your cornerstone, as your foundation? The second question is, who are you locking arms with in the family of God? Like, are there stones next to you? Are there people next to you? Are there people across from you? That they're for you, you're for them, you're in a community group, you're in some kind of ministry, you're serving alongside one another, that you're participating in this spiritual house that's being built up. And even when you get frustrated, even when it doesn't happen day one, that you press forward to that, to achieve that, to see that in your life, to lock arms, to be part of this family that's being built up. And then the third question is, who is outside the family that you need to proclaim Jesus to? Maybe some of you think, well, I'll do that when I go on a mission trip. I'll do that when the time is right. I'll do that when I finish this project. I'll do that. Who are you proclaiming Jesus to now? Who do you need to proclaim Jesus to now as you leave today? Jesus says in Matthew 16, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it against it. Listen, our goal is not to protect, it's to proclaim that even when Jesus says that, who's on the defensive? Hell. That Jesus is going to build this church and build this church and build this church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. So what do we do as we see this family built on Jesus for this purpose? And we keep pressing forward. As it gets darker, we keep shining the light of Jesus. As it gets harder, we keep bringing the joy of Jesus because even the gates of hell will not prevail against it. That he's building you into a family centered on him to declare and demonstrate his blessings. And that's an amazing gift. Will you step out and be a part of that? Will you initiate and participate in that? Let's pray. Father in heaven, Father, I thank you for this text. I thank you for this passage. I thank you for the word of God. There's so much that we just read. But God, I pray that you would bring clarity. I pray that by the power of the Holy Spirit that you would bring clarity. And God, I pray in the, in the places that there's not clarity, God, we would wrestle with that tension. We would know we have to go read this book 
that we can't just crack it open and dust it off for an hour on Sunday and think we got it. No, there's more in here. There's more in this passage that we need to go read and, and go into our community group and study and ask questions. And so, God, I pray that we would. I pray that that wouldn't scare us away, but that would draw us to you, that we are desperate for you and our need for you and our desire to understand you more, to know you more, to love you more, to live like you and to lead others to you. God, that this is a family that you're building. These men and women right here, they're a family that you're building and the gates of hell won't prevail against it that we push forward, we keep fighting, we keep proclaiming, we keep declaring until you come back and make all things right. And we lock arms with one another along the way. God, I pray that if there's men and women here that aren't experiencing that, that they would begin to take a step in that direction. That they would walk out in faith, they would grab somebody before they leave, they would ask a question that they're afraid to ask. They would do whatever it takes to take a step to participate in this family. God, we pray for your help. And we ask for that in the name of Jesus. And it's by your spirits, through your word. Amen.